0: Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of the Virginia Beach Potter's House. All this week, we are playing the evening sermons from the recent 2022 Bible Conference in Prescott, Arizona. We will resume our regular schedule this coming Saturday. We hope you enjoy today's sermon.
1: Hallelujah. Wow, what a what a tremendous uh, atmosphere that's in this place. And we thank God for excellent excellent preaching and ministry and it's a a privilege just to be here and a chance to contribute and uh all that god is doing and so uh, thank god for that you know uh since we start here at six it's an hour later there in texas and our church in san antonio is right now in church and so i intended to preach this sermon sunday there i wasn't able to do that last sunday and so i'm going to do it this sunday so if you're watching change the channel uh, and, um, uh, and so, um, there we go. All right, John chapter 11. We're going to the Word of God, John chapter 11. And uh, believe God uh, to help us. And uh, God just put this thought on my heart uh, for this conference some time ago. And like I said, I haven't a chance to take it out for a spin, so we'll see what happens. So here's an interesting fact. In... Uh, uh, 2022, as we are here today, approximately 1 million people have died due to war or to revolution in this century. About a million people. Let's go back 100 years. And by 1922, more than 50 million people had already died because of war and revolution. You know, if life were to go on, they're going to look back at the 20th century as an extremely bloody century. The reality is they estimate around 230 million people were killed as a result of war or upheaval in the world. Many of you are familiar with the names. We think of Stalin or Hitler or Mao or Pol Pot. These men are uh, part of the hall of fame of evil who are responsible for the deaths of multiplied many, many, many millions of people. But here's the reality. These men didn't kill 230 million people. If you're going to kill people on that scale, you're going to have to have some help. What you're going to have to have is you're going to have to be able to move masses of people to buy into your message and participate and create the killing fields or the gas ovens, you're going to have to be able to create the pogroms and all that uh, was a part of the last century. Um, And these men are known not necessarily for killing people, but for the ability to move masses of people to kill people. They did this by a message. There's a threat. If you look at uh, our last century, why they were able to accomplish this, there's a thread, and that's the thread that I want to preach on. And that is they were able to make the case that for the welfare of our society, we have to get rid of this group of people. There was This group of people, they are a menace, they're a nuisance, they are the cause. And uh, if we could just remove them, then we could have this wonderful ideal, this uh, political utopia that we keep talking about, they basically said, we are doing this for the greater good. Well, We know, you know, nobody wants to kill anybody, but uh, if we are going to achieve the greater good, then we are going to have to do this, and as a result, a terrible loss of life. I guess what inspired this sermon is I began to hear that being said an awful lot recently, I could have many quotes tonight, but I'm gonna use only one quote somebody may have heard of before, if you want to put that up. He said, there comes a time uh, when you do have to give up what you consider your individual right to make your own decision for the greater good of society. Dr. Science. (laughs) Now this isn't a political sermon. But I want to tell you when you are hearing this over and over again, the greater good, the greater good, I'm telling you, if you're a born-again Christian, you better fasten your seat belt. I want to preach a sermon tonight called The Greater Good, John chapter 11, and we are going to drop into a secret meeting that is taking place among uh, uh, the chief priests, uh, and we will begin in verse 47. It says, then the chief priests... And the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do for this man, that's the Lord Jesus, works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. Verse 49, one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest at your, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, And not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Uh, Verse 53 says, Then from that day on they plotted to put him to death. Father, help us tonight. Oh God, give us a revelation. (laughs) Preserve us. And God visit us as individuals in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Now let's begin and let's look at the justification that's in our story here. So here we are given access to these deliberations. And these are the final hours uh, before Jesus is going to be arrested. Now what has happened here is the priests have grown tired of Jesus' ministry. And they feared his growing Popularity, two recent events had taken place we 're looking in the final week of jesus ministry here on earth and the two things that happened is one is Lazarus had been risen from the dead, that uh, this man that had been dead four days, uh, Jesus Christ stood uh, and spoke Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus uh, came hopping out of that grave. Uh, It was a notable miracle, it was widely understood, and the Bible says as a result that many people came uh, and believed, uh, not because of what Jesus said, but because uh, what Jesus did, that Lazarus was alive. It was so powerful, the Bible says they wanted to kill Lazarus. I mean, oh, that's a drag when you get risen from the dead and they want to kill you again. But this was something that had left a deep impression, and this is what they were actually referring to. Not only that, Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey, and the uh, fulfilled a, a thousand years earlier, they had brought the Ark of the Covenant uh, into Jerusalem, and now he has come in. And' there, there's such a prophetic uh, 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 presence there that the Bible says the people began to scream and cheer, uh, and Jesus said, the rocks would cry, and, and the priests would upset, and they, they were so troubled by this, and so they're worried, and like, what are we going to do? How are we going to deal with this popularity? popularity? It's almost like they felt they were losing grip until Caiaphas, the high priest, uh, speaks up, um, and it's very, very interesting because he took Jesus' popularity and the notable miracles, uh, and he took that idea, and he turned it on its head. And he said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to create a rationale, a a logic, a justification of why we need to kill him. uh, And we're going to kill him uh, not because he's unpopular, but because he's too popular. And our scripture says in verse 48, if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. And Caiaphas being the high priest said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. In other words, we're going to sell this as the greater good. That's how we're going to pull this off. We are going to make the case uh, that if we let this man uh, continue to move, uh, he is going to become such a menace to the Rome that they're going to come and they're going to kill all of us uh, and we are doing the nation a favor uh, to nip this in the bud uh, and to prevent this uh, and so it made perfect sense, Uh, yeah, 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 we're going to take this man and as Pastor Foley said this morning, we're going to commit the greatest crime in history all in the name of the greater good. See, the doctrine of the greater good this evening, you know, the philosopher calls it utilitarianism. It is the idea that people are tools. There's a purpose, and to achieve that purpose, people are utility. That's all they are. To get us to achieve the purpose that we want, it is a moral argument that yes, we need to sacrifice the interests uh, of the individual uh, for of other people, and I'm going to talk about that tonight, but I'm going to give a little disclaimer if you'll allow me. Now listen tonight, amen, I, I have children, I have grandchildren, I want to tell you when if you're here or not here, maybe you're watching online, maybe one day it'll be an issue, if you've got a little baby, man, we love babies, I love babies, but if you're sitting in church and that baby starts to cry for the greater good, take them to the nursery, Amen. Don't hate on me, amen, don't get, you know. All right, okay, let's get back to the sermon. <laughs> Someone's gonna say, that's it, I'm not moving. Cry all you want, you know, anyway, <laughs> never mind." The moral argument that, yeah, you know what? For the larger purpose, why should we let this little nuisance stand in our way? To put it uh, simply, what is good for the majority is good. That's basically the morality. What is good for the majority is good. You know, we know with COVID, one of the things COVID has done, it's allowed sinners to become self-righteous. As they walk around and bark at you for not wearing your mask or not being social distanced uh, uh, while you're out hiking on top of the mountain uh, and, uh, and, and, and they act all outraged at you and uh, mad dog you. And uh, I was uh, one time in a waiting room there in a hospital uh, and a doctor's Yolanda was in and I was waiting for outside. And you know, I'm, there's nobody around. I took my mask down. I'm reading and this viejita looks at me. And uh, anyway, so you know, it's just... And I'll tell you why this is a matters tonight. Because you and I are strangers in a strange land. Because there might be a lot of us here tonight, but I want to tell you there are a lot of us. And so we better pay attention when we are living in a society that is now telling us uh, that, uh, uh, you know, we don't really care what you think or what you believe for the greater good. You and I better tune in to this reality because we know prophecy and prophecy tells us uh, that in the last days, uh, the church of Jesus Christ is going to be persecuted as it has been for the last 2,000 years, uh, always in the name of the greater good. We all know that uh, Nero fiddled, uh, Rome burned, and then after it burned, blamed Christians uh, and uh, turned uh, the the power of Rome uh, against the church, beloved, uh, all with this argument uh, of the greater good. And John 16, uh, the Lord Jesus said, the time is coming uh, that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. It's not just that people say, I'm going to kill Christians. Uh, They're going to kill Christians because they think it's good to kill Christians. They're going to think it's good. They're going to think that, you know what, uh, there's a higher good that's involved here. And these people are preventing uh, what we could have and they're going to be moved by that. And so, this is a reality tonight. And so, I want to stop for a moment here and give a little context. Uh, and I appreciate all of our missionaries tonight. But I want to take a few moments and talk about the secret of American exceptionalism. Because I believe in American exceptionalism tonight. I believe tonight that America is unique and has been a blessed nation. And I'll tell you why we have an exceptional nation. It is not because of our Constitution. Our Constitution is basically a rule book. If you read it, it basically tells you uh, how our government is to operate, thank God. I think there's a lot of genius behind it. You can thank James Madison and Alexander Hamilton mainly for that product. It was uh, a very, very uh, good idea, but the truth was when uh, the Constitution was completed uh, and they began to circulate it to the colonies to sign on to it, nobody was happy. There were all kinds of people that were very angry. Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death. I want to tell you, he, he vehemently opposed very powerfully the Constitution. And Many people did, and I'll tell you the reason why. Because when these people fought, laid down their life, sacrificed for the independence of this nation, and they read that document, they said, that's great, but what does it say about the individual? You have told us about, yeah, this is what uh, a federal government will look like. Well, what does that mean to the average individual man or woman? And they came back and said, no, no, no. You understand, some of what we moved from this. We have fought people like this. We know all about the despots and dictators and monarchs around the world. uh, And no, 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 we're not chattel here. Uh, If we're going to have a powerful nation, then you better have some powerful individual people in that nation. You know what came out of that? The Bill of Rights. I want to tell you what makes America exceptional is the Bill of Rights. With that said, if you're an American citizen, you have rights. You have authority. In this nation, uh, it is not the greater good. It is not the power of the majority. It is not anybody that can come along because there's more of us than you. That somehow we can do whatever we want. I want to tell you one of the things that frightened me when this whole thing started is watching some of these governors get a little bit of power uh, during a health crisis and all of a sudden uh, begin to act like little dictators in their states uh, because of this idea that we have the power, we can run right over you. I want to tell you the Bill of Rights says, no, you can't. December 15th, just uh, not quite a month ago, was the 230-year anniversary of the Bill of Rights. Yeah, not a whole lot was said about it, but Americans have the freedom to worship. The state can't tell us who to worship, and they can't tell, the state can't tell us not to worship. That's why we can stand on a street corner and preach. And we don't back off. We can assemble. When they said don't assemble, we said no more, no more. We get, we, we, uh, we tried to slow the curve. We're going back to church. You're not stopping us anymore. We're having church. <laughs> we have the freedom to speech. We have the freedom to address our grievances with the government. We have the freedom of peaceful protest. These are enshrined. There's something. And so America took this, do you know that monarchs and the elites of that generation thought America was crazy when they introduced the Bill of Rights. They said, you're crazy. You're going to empower these people, these individuals. You're going to give them the right to, to tell you what they don't like about your government, to peacefully protest. You're going to, you're, you're, you're going to, you're, you're you're crazy. You're going to have nothing but problems. I want to tell you it didn't work out that way because when you have empowered people, you have an empowered nation. All of a sudden, these are the people that over the last 245 years, again and again and again, has gone and helped other nations and liberated nations. It didn't turn on America. It made America powerful. You know, if you read the Bill of Rights, you know, what's really interesting is that most of them have to do when you're not popular. That they say, when this is going to matter is when you're not popular, when you get arrested. Amen. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about when you get arrested. You have a right to a defense. You have a right to a speedy trial. You have a right to face your accuser. You got a right to bear arms. I'm preaching to the choir right now here in Prescott. It's not a suicide pact to have empowered people. Think with me tonight about a very powerful story about God's investment in individuals. Remember the story where uh, Ahab uh, sees a piece of property that he wants, and it belongs to Naboth. You know, the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about Naboth. He's a good man. He's a faithful man. And Naboth will refuses to sell it to him or trade it for even a better property. And he says, "Why? My father gave me this land, and my responsibility is to give it to my son. It's my inheritance. He won't do it." Abel, uh, uh, Ahab gets all upset We know that he goes back to his palace uh, And uh, he lies down, turns his face to the wall If you look it up in Hebrew It means it's stuck his thumb in his mouth But uh, he's sitting there And Jezebel comes along And says to him, what's wrong, Bill I, I mean, what's wrong, Ahab And, uh, and she, he says How oh, I want this property Don't let me have this property uh, and, and, and her words, man The spirit of Jezebel is a wicked spirit She says, then Jezebel's wife said to him, you now exercise authority over Israel. That's how she responded to him. You have the power. You're going to let this individual, you're going to let this one guy stand before power. You're in charge. Because this is how these people think. I'm in charge. And the Bible says she quickly went to work, had him canceled, and then he was (laughs) killed. And Ahab quickly went and took possession of the property. But I want to tell you, God saw this. And better listen to me tonight. If you are a person in a position of power, God saw that. He saw that he took and exploited his power to run over one man, Nabatha. And the Bible says that God sent Elijah to him and said, dude, you're dead. Now, you know, think about it. By this time, Ahab's already done all kinds of grievous things. He's already a bad actor. In other words, he already deserves judgment. He already deserves death. He's already introduced Baal worship, all of that. And yet it didn't matter. It was right here uh, when he violated the rights of one man that the God of heaven uh, said, you're dead. I'm going to get you for this. And now I want you know, how I'm going to do this. You know what's going to happen to you. Uh, you're going to die and your blood is going to be shed right at the very spot where you killed this man and he spilled his blood. We know that later on they're in battle and Ahab already knows there's a, a heavenly contract out on his life. That's not a good thing. You can worry about uh, the cartels, but when God has a contract out on you, you're done. And the Bible says, you know, he changes clothes with foolish Jehoshaphat. He's trying to do everything he can. As soon as he realizes he's leaving, he gets in his chariot, heads the other way. We know that guy with the random arrow, launches it. God gets a hold of it, goes right between his armor, pow! And he begins mortally wounded. uh, And the Bible says uh, as he's there dead or dying there in his chariot, those uh, uh, horses uh, take him right and stop on the very ground where they killed Naboth. And the blood begins to pour out uh, because that's a lesson for any man in power. You step on people because you think you can. Uh, You think that you have all. And there's a God in heaven who has power tonight. uh, And he keeps an eye on the individual. I want to talk to you then about God and the individual tonight. Genesis 2-7, the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. I don't want to offend anybody tonight, but the Bible says that what makes men different than the animals is that God breathed the breath of life in man. He did not breathe in your dog. (laughs) I just lost half the people right now. Amen. You go to a hotel nowadays, you feel like you're in a kennel. (laughs) Men have a breath of God in them. He became a living soul or a piece of eternity. The gospel, beloved, is powerfully aimed at individuals, not a collective. Our ministry, the ministry of Jesus came to individuals, think with me about some of the most well-known verses that we use so often the very hairs of your head are numbered you are of more value than sparrows he leaves the 99 and goes to the one Uh, heaven rejoices over one sinner who repents we hear this all these are all the words of the Lord Jesus he is accenting and emphasizing uh, the individual you know, that, remember the first time that they tried to kill Jesus? Let me read it to you, Luke 4. I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three and a half years. And there was a great famine throughout all the land, but to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon. To a woman who was a widow and many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet. None of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill in which your city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. You say, what? That statement that kind of passion and hatred in those people that they would want to take Jesus and throw him over a cliff. And you read, what was it? I'll tell you what it was. It was Jesus Christ saying, you know what? I know people by name and guess what? I know Gentiles by name. There's a widow in Zarephath. There's a man named Naaman. Whether they're the lowest or the highest, it makes no difference. God knows people. These people thought Gentiles. They saw a collective. They saw a group, a group that's out of covenant with God. And Jesus stood up and said, I know people, I know people, I know people you hate. And I love them and I'll help them. And I want to tell you, when you start doing that, that ticks people off. The glory of the church is that you and I are not a collective tonight. We're not just a mass. We're not just a bunch of faithless people. Everybody here tonight is an individual. Every one of you is a miracle. You know what makes a church powerful tonight? It is the the premise of the church that when we come here, every one of us has our own relationship with God. We have our own salvation that we pray and we read our Bible. That every one of us, uh, it doesn't matter what gender you are, or how old you are, uh, has saying, "God, I want Your will for my life." And we come together, and we join together, and we understand that part of my personal relationship with Jesus Christ is He brings me into His church with other people that have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, and I want to tell you, where you have that, uh, you have a very powerful dimension. That it's not just a group; it is not just numbers. You know, I was thinking about this. I was saved in the Tucson church back in 1979. And the church was around 250 people at the time. And uh, I've shared before in the four years that I was there, I had a chance to see it grow from 250 to probably 600, 650 people. And, and uh, you know, I'll tell you one thing that I always remember in the early days of the Tucson churches is that everybody in the church witnessed. There weren't a whole lot of children at the time. It was a lot of young adults and a few of us that were a little bit younger. But everybody witnessed. It wasn't. An, it wasn't even outreach. It wasn't. Like we had to do this on Saturday. At, I'm not saying we shouldn't. I'm just saying it was. It just wasn't that. If there was growth, or anything, it was just that everybody that left had a handful of tracks uh, and spent between Sunday and Wednesday witnessing, and then bringing those people to church on Wednesday night. They're, they're, they're everybody, I'm saying, everybody had their own individual something happening in them. One of the things I'm always concerned about as the years roll by is that we have this idea that from up here, we're moving masses. We're going to say the right thing and come up with the right program and you have clever outreach and we're going to move groups. I want to tell you, friend, that's not the church. The church of living stones. It's individuals that have a touch of God. God moving powerfully and individually of their life. you know the criticism? Of a Church criticism of our fellowship Was all it's a cookie cutter It's just a cookie cutter church You know what I mean You guys are just, Everybody's the same Listen man I was a cookie cutter When I was a sinner You know I was individual It's crazy I was an individual But I dressed just like everybody else I sinned the way I do it With everybody else I lived the very life I wasn't an individual I was a cookie cutter You want to be different Why don't you stand up And live for Jesus And serve God
0: of Chandler Conference, so please subscribe today by using the links in the show notes below. Thanks.
1: You know, the disciples were all very different. I was thinking about, uh, 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 I was watching the services yesterday morning, and I was thinking just about our, just just this week, all the different accents that we've heard. You know, we've heard a, a, a Nigerian accent. We've had a Russian accent. Who ever thought we'd have had a Russian accent in our fellowship back in the 80s? We've had an Indian accent. Uh, I'm trying to remember who else here, um, uh, Indian, Russian. We had a Bostonian accent right there. (laughs) And tonight you get to hear a Texas accent, y'all. What I'm saying to you, and I don't think, think, oh, these are just a bunch of cookie cutters. I'm going to tell you, these. you know why these men are powerful preachers? Because they've individually touched God. That's how come. Because they were discipled in a church that said, this is, I'm going to I'll let these men find the will of God for their life. See, we, we will not have powerful churches unless we have powerful people in our churches. If we're threatened by powerful people, if we're not really interested in empowering people, you can't have a powerful church. Powerful church isn't one that just does what you say. That just, well, yeah, whatever. And they have no critical thinking, no ability to make judgments. They're living in fear of getting in trouble with the past. You can do that, bro, but you're not going to have a powerful church. Because these men that you're seeing preaching, that's not where they came from. They came from somewhere, a pastor uh, that's uh, understood, you know what, these men uh, are touching God's, God's helping them, all I'm doing is cooperating with what God is already doing in their life. Think tonight about Christianity. It's all about empowerment, conversion. There's no such thing as mass conversion. You have mass conversion, you have a cult. People who get saved have a powerful personal experience with Jesus Christ. You think for a minute about your salvation. I want to tell you, beloved, it is between you and God. God has dealt with you. He's moved on you. Things have happened, circumstances. I was saved April 13, 1979. When I woke up that morning, I had no clue that by 9 o'clock that night, I would bow my knee to Jesus Christ. I want to tell you, God was working on me individually, uniquely. There were people that answered that same altar call that night, uh, amen, that are still serving God in the Tucson church. uh, Totally different. It wasn't a mass conversion, it was an individual conversion. And that is what you and I are contending for. That is what we're aiming for. That is why we witness one on one. I'm not a promoter, I'm a preacher one-on-one people that will share the gospel and minister to people that's why we take altar calls every service even if you think you know everybody that is there you never know what god is doing in the individual heart you never know how he's ministering to people I mean, my goodness, that God would go to Philip, who's having revival in Samaria, the majority, and say, I want you to leave here, and I'm going to take you out of the middle of the desert. There's one man I want you to minister to. There's one soul that I care about, I have my eye on, and I want you to leave where you are, and I want you to go there. Oh, beloved, I thank God that that is how God looks at the human soul tonight. Amen. That that is the value that he places tonight. Conversion is not a, a collective; it is all about the individual. Let's move on. What about convictions? I mean, oh, a lot of our effort is keeping people in line. We have standards for ministry. And I want you to know that we have every right and every responsibility to have standards and say, if you're going to serve in ministry here, then you are going to uh, have to help us set an example uh, and create a culture of discipleship. And so this is what we expect from you. uh, And and we do that uh, in our church in San Antonio. We have the same standards there in San Antonio. You're going to be on the platform. You're going to wear a tire dress. Men wear ties, women wear dresses. I'm saying that because people from California are watching right now. I have to — got it in clarity, you know. I don't want to look at Rich, he's bigger than me. <laughs> You're going to do this and uh, we have a n- any number of them, but the reality is, beloved, standards aren't convictions standards are, hey, we, this is what we're going to need, we're going to do, and what we hope is that you will grow into your, you'll grow into some convictions. You'll be like Isaac and you'll redig the wells of your father. They will become real to you and you'll call them by the same name, that you're going to arrive at that conclusion. But I want to tell you there are a lot, you think about convictions. Convictions is individual, It's personal. God deals with you. He moves on you. And, and uh, you know, you can browbeat people into going to prayer meeting. You can, uh, you, you can guilt them into doing almost anything. You can get them up here and repeat the longest prayer you want. But I want to tell you, at some point, uh, somebody, uh, better if they have a relationship with God, God's going to start talking to them. Begin to deal with them about, you know, about what kind of prayer life you have. Why do you always, you know, drag into church 10 minutes uh, before service and you don't go? And and listen, I want to tell you, God does a better job than we do. He puts stuff inside of us. All of a sudden, God begins to deal with me about things. Nobody said to me, hey, man, put on a tie. But God just began to deal with me. Grow up. Come to prayer meeting. Have a prayer life. Start waking up early. Go on an outreach. Sign up for an invasion team. And God begins to put things in you and they become convictions and God begins to deal with you. Personal holiness. Oh God, I want to be right. I want to be right when nobody's around. I want to be right. And I went to only God can do that. And, and the trouble, beloved, today, when you recede into the collective, it's just said, well, I, you know, I'm going to keep the standards. I don't, I don't go to the movies. I just watch them on my phone. You know? <laughs> Got Instagram and all this stuff, man, and you're bringing in. And, 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 and you like, well, you're illegal. Listen, I'm telling you, at some point, you better ask yourself, what is God dealing with you about to be? What personal choices is he dealing with you about? Amen. <laughs> no, David. I think Pastor Payne mentioned this yesterday. It's in the cave, and there's uh, King Saul, and Saul's trying to kill him, and David. Hit, Saul decides to go to the bathroom, and the cave happens to be where they're all hiding, and and so uh, as Saul is indisposed. David and his men are right around him, and all his men are, kill him, kill him, shank him, and doing all this. <laughs> and, and David's there, and he's like, what do I do? And then he says, you know what i do? I, I don't want to kill him, but I'm going to just cut a little piece of his robe to prove to him I could have killed him, but I didn't want to kill him. Well, why don't you back off? And the Bible says that David just cuts a little piece, and bam, the Spirit of God deals with him. Everybody in that cave said, there's nothing wrong with that. This guy's trying to kill you. I don't think that's wrong. I don't have a conviction about that. But David, somehow, in that relationship with God, God was able to reach down and put something in him, and it didn't matter what everybody else around him thought. Let me ask you tonight, do you have convictions, or are you measuring on what everybody else is doing tonight? Is it all about, well, you know, so, so every once in a while I got to bring somebody in, they're in ministry, and hey, you did this or that. You know what they do? They throw other people under the bus. They start confessing uh, and, uh, you know, <laughs> plea, get a plea bill, you know, and they're, they're, they put all this, and it's like, and, and, and my response when they give that to me is not, really, give me their names. My response is, well, is, that, is that all there is to you? Is this what it is? Or you set your whole life based on what other people are doing? You have no personal convictions of your own? A man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. You can't make people this, pastor. But I want to tell you tonight, if you're a Christian in this world that is saying these things, you better figure out what you believe and who you are. Thirdly, there's calling. The call of God is personal. The call of God is not a collective. We come here, we get moved on, preaching can move our hearts, but beloved, and last night when Pastor Campbell called for a hundred men that were willing to go to India, and thank God there are men that say, I'm willing to go, but I want to tell you tonight, God dropped on some men last night. God spoke to them um, very powerfully. The Bible says that Jesus, when he called the 12, called them by name. They, their names are come. This was not a group who wants to follow me. Come on, anybody wants to come, let's go. No, no, by name. I want to tell you the call of God is by name. If you have time, find any one of these preachers. Uh, There are hundreds of them. Pull them aside and say, how did you know you were called? Uh, And that brother will keep you for the next three hours. Because any man that's called has a testimony about his calling. His calling is as real as Moses and the burning bush it is something very personal. Uh, It was never a group thing. Uh, You know, every once in a while, you have these embittered uh, people, you know, uh, I just went to conference and I got the hype, or I felt, you know, you weren't anybody unless you were a preacher. What a cop-out. I want to tell you, friend, uh, when God calls you, you know that He called you. uh, And you know what? He doesn't uncall you after He called you either. Samuel, Samuel, I mean, when I think about those words, Samuel, Samuel. I mean, what are we doing here this week? We are here gathered with the belief that God is going to say, Samuel, Samuel, Juan, Carlos, that he's going to call men by name, that they're going to be troubled. They're going to go and not be able to sleep at night. They're going to be disturbed in their spirit. It's going to be personal to them. It's going to cause them to change everything they thought they were going to do for the next year. It's the powered individual that God is able to reach down and move people's lives. Let me hurry up and close here this evening. Our will is to do his will. See, the greatest devotion, beloved, is not that you and I are compelled to do anything, but that we choose to do what he wants us to do. It's when the individual says, I'm going to do the will of God. I want God's blessed in my life. Grant Harris, uh, Brent's here tonight. Brent and Sarah pastored in China for five years. And uh, they were the last American missionary in our fellowship. Uh, They get tossed. And they finally left back in September. And uh, we were talking the other day. And Brent gave me a very interesting observation about China. So, you know, here's China, you know, they're saber rattling and, you know, we hear all this stuff about China and now these things that they're doing towards Taiwan and all of that. Brent made an interesting statement, I guess, that's out there over in that part of the world. And The, the belief is that China would, is not going to go to war. And the reason why I thought was pretty fascinating and that is that China, as many of you know, for many years had a one-child-only policy. And so today's Chinese military is made up of men who are the end of the line for two, gener- two different family lines. I know that. I remember going to China years ago, the most spoiled, rotten kids I ever saw were little Chinese. They called them little emperors. Because, you know, one child had uh, the parents, four grandparents, and, and uh, they, they represented the end of the line. And today's Chinese military, and that, the, you know, this is not Korea. You read about the, the war in Korea, and I want to tell you, man, uh, that the, Mao was sending uh, these men by the thousands, the tens of thousands, many of them were bare feet in the middle of winter, and they were stacking their bodies like cordwood. That's not, this isn't Korea. Today's military if they, they haven't been to war since Korea. That the idea that the, 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 the population is not going to tolerate it. I want to tell you tonight laying down a life is voluntary. Nobody's trying to make you do anything. Ross McGinnis, Army Specialist Ross McGinnis, 19 year old, outside of Baghdad. He's riding up in the, uh, 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 the gun turret. Up on top, they're traveling through. Hand grenade is tossed and falls inside the vehicle, the armored personnel vehicle. This 19-year-old young man is sitting above it. He sees that grenade, and he has the option of simply leaping off of the vehicle and saving his life. But rather than do that, that 19-year-old young man threw himself down and lay on top of that grenade and absorbed its explosion saving the other four soldiers that were there. Of course he was given the medal of honor posthumously. Greater love has no man than this that he laid down his life for his friends. See that wasn't compelled. That wasn't the four grabbing him and pulling him down. This is the choice of an individual to say, this is what I will do. This is what I'm willing to do. This is the power of the surrendered life. It's when you sit here as an American, you sit here saved, redeemed, whatever country that you're from, and and now God has blessed you and helped you, and, and you could do a million things, but you say, no, no, I choose this. I choose this. Thursday night, men are going to grab their wives and hold their hands. They're going to walk up on this stage. And when they stand here, they're saying, you didn't make me do this. Uh, Nobody fooled me to do that. I stand here of my own free will, choosing the will of God, uh, choosing a nation. Uh, I'm going to lay down my life for that nation. Don't recede into the collective. You know what that means? It means we come to conference, but we're not bringing it to conference. We're just sitting and hearing sermons, enjoying them. Offerings come, that's a good one. I'll just do that. but instead of bringing it, being empowered and saying, tonight I have an old, my own free will, I can do this. That I'm going to give because I'm here, I'm totally engaged here. I'm not just a part of the mass and just kind of moving along and just kind of, no, no, no. I want to leave her knowing that I laid it all on the floor. You ever thought of the words that Peter said to Ananias? Remember Ananias, the guy that fake give? How I many know you can fake give? You can carry yourself as if you're a giver. You're not a giver. And he said to Ananias, he says, while it was, he's referring to that money, while it was with you, was it not your own? Nobody was forcing him to give. Peter says it was yours, bro. You're an individual. God respects private property. It belonged to you. You But you got to bring it. You got to make up your mind. Am I going to give what belongs to me? Am I going to participate? Or am I just going to recede into the masses, just kind of go through the motions, and not really embrace what could have happened this week in our lives? Can God tap you on the shoulder this week? Can He speak to you as an individual? You know, it's interesting here, we think about the Lord Jesus, that John adds this commentary, said that Ananias did not say this on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die. For the nation what, what a fascinating thought so here's Ananias he's a devil and he's saying you know what expedience uh, let's just kill this man and save ourselves that's what we're going to tell everybody and because he was high priest he was stepping in an office that he didn't realize what he was actually saying he didn't understand that that office that joy dates all the way back to Aaron And the high priest all of that served a much larger purpose. uh, And that uh, what you had here is this man operating in real time, thinking he's calling the shots. But in reality, God has called the shots. It's Passover. uh, Jesus is the Passover lamb. uh, And he says that this wasn't, you didn't decide this. God decided this. And the glory of the gospel is by one man, sin came into the earth. And by one man, you and I are redeemed. That Jesus Christ chose this he chose it as pastor Foley so powerfully preached this one he chose it this was a decision you know Pilate said to him John 19 Pilate said to him are you speaking to me he's mad at Jesus he won't talk to him he said, are you not speaking to me do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you These men, they think they call the shots. I love what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 26. Do you think not that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? So a Roman legion is about 6,000 men. So let's do the math. 6,000. We know in the time of Hezekiah, one angel killed 185,000 in one night. 185,000 times uh, uh, 6,000 is 432 million. So 72,000, say 12 legions, 72,000 times 185,000, mm, million people. Oh, well, I'm, 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 I'm getting confused here, but that. Is. You know what it actually adds up to? Jesus says, I can, at this moment, I have enough... Angelic power that can kill at least because he said at least 12 2.3 billion people right now. Now they say in the first century there were 200 million people alive on the planet. So basically what he was saying is, "I could kill all you all 66 times over." <laughs> that this was on his mind. And there's Pilate. Don't you know I have the power to take you? <laughs> Jesus said in John 10, I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. He chooses this. Jesus and the individual. I do not believe, church, that it's an accident that Jesus Christ died between two thieves and that his last earthly ministry was to one man, a sinner, a guy that was going to die a premature death because he was a criminal. And his last conversation... Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Today you will be with me. In Paris. And 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 with all that he fed the multitudes and the priests were worried about the masses and all of that. In the end, it's still Jesus on a cross speaking to one miserable sinner. Because that's what it's always been. Because that's why we plant churches. That's why we send out just two people, a man and a wife, an Abraham and a Sarah, every last one of them. And we go and they go and they're going to get one person saved and then a second and a third. It is not masses, church. It's individual souls. (laughs) I'll close with this story and we'll pray. This dates way back to the early days when I was in Las Vegas, New Mexico. In our uh, church there, there uh, was a sister, Edna Zamora. Edna worked at this uh, little bakery in the center of town called Speak and Span. Now Las Vegas, I've told you before, it was a state mental institution. They would let the the, uh, clients out every once in a while so the city had a lot of characters. Uh, And uh, there was a guy that was a town drunk He was, uh, uh, people would see him, he was always drunk, um, and they would all tend to go into Spick and Span and drink uh, coffee all day and and were there, and this guy, everybody knew him. It would have been like, if if you knew anything about Mayberry, this would have been Otis. And uh, this guy was, uh, uh, you know, drunk. And so he's going in there. Edna's a waitress in there. And she begins to witness to him. He's an affable character, but he's a drunk. And she begins to witness to him. And then one day, Jasper comes to church. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's 30. He's not bathed. He smells. He's homeless. And he comes. And he, and he comes down to the altar and prays, you know. And, and he's homeless. And so we have a men's home. And so you know, we throw him in the bins, home, and it's just kind of like, let's see how this, this lasts, and next thing you know, things start happening in Jasper. He starts cleaning up his act. He, he gets sober. He starts, you know, coming to church and coming to prayer, and just, you know, God's helping him. Jasper at the time would have been around 50. All of us are in our early 20s, and, and, and God starts helping Jasper. He's a character. I remember one time Yolanda walked in, and Jasper's smiling, and he's chewing on something, Yolanda says, what are you chewing? He says, I'm chewing gum against gum, because you didn't have any teeth. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I took him to a conference. You know, only God knows the people we take to conference, you know. And back then, the church was right on skid Row, and they, we, the hotel they used was right next to the carols, and, and, you know, it's the kind of hotel that gets raided. And, uh, and I remember one of, the, one of the people came and said, hey, that disciple, uh, from your church, you know, or it was at the carols at three in the morning talking to all the prostitutes, and, and I said, Jasper, what are you doing? Said, they need Jesus, and I mean, but you know, so, whatever. <laughs> Jasper ended up joining the choir. God was helping him, and I remember one Sunday, Jasper by then had moved, got his own place, and one Sunday didn't come to church, and so we were looking for him, and so one of the guys went, knocked on his door, and asked him, uh, you know. The landlord and they came open the door and Jasper had died. He had a heart attack. He'd probably been in the church maybe six months. He's from Somerset, Massachusetts, or Somerville, Massachusetts. That's what it's called. And so the police, you know, I'm the pastor, I'm like 22. and they came and they said, We have tracked down his sister's phone number. Will you call and inform the family that he died? And so I said, you know. So I call this lady on the phone, and I explain who I am. And I said, "Uh, "I'm calling because uh, your your brother Jasper's died." And um, you know, and she's oh, and she starts to cry on the phone, and and she just starts to say, "Oh, we feel Jasper. I mean, he was an alcoholic, and he had six kids, and his wife left him, and he just couldn't handle it, and he just drifted. We hadn't heard from him for years, and we know, you know, you know, we we knew that this was bound to happen, and." And, and I said, Well, wait a minute. Hold on, ma'am. Wait a minute. That's not the whole story. She said, What? It said, Jasper, six months ago, gave his life to Jesus. He wasn't drinking anymore. What? He wasn't drinking anymore. He was in our church. He is singing in our choir. She says, Oh, my God. She's crying on the phone. And, and, and it just brought home to me. I, th- I walked away from that conversation and thinking, You know, this is who Jesus Christ is tonight. This is what we mean by the God of the individual. Souls matter. That picture Pastor Campbell showed us last night, every single one of them matters. I want to tell you tonight, it doesn't matter who you are, you matter tonight. God has invested power in you to change the world. Let's bow our heads.